Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called God in the Dock, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 28, 2014. In 2005, Pavel Mircea, a Romanian convict serving time for murder, tried to sue God for breach of contract. He was supposed to protect me from all evils, and instead he gave me the Satan who encouraged me to kill, Mircea contended. In 2007, Nebraska State Senator Ernie Chambers filed his own lawsuit against God, accusing the Almighty, in a fit of alliteration, of fearsome floods, egregious earthquakes, horrendous hurricanes, terrifying tornadoes, pestilential plagues, and the like. Predictably, both lawsuits were dismissed. Since God doesn't have a legal address, the presiding judges argued, he can't be summoned to appear in court. Naturally, we laugh at such theatrics. But in this week's reading from the book of Exodus, we encounter a courtroom scene even more dramatic than Mircea's or Chambers. To use C.S. Lewis's trenchant phrase, we find God in the dock, God on trial. God, his legal address notwithstanding, showing up of his own accord to face the accusations of his people. The setting is the wilderness of Rephidim. Newly freed from slavery, the Israelites have been traveling from place to place under God's command. They've seen pillars of cloud and fire. They've seen manna rain down from the heavens, and quail appear to ease their hunger. But now they're camped in the wilderness, water has run out, and dehydration is imminent. As thirst devolves into panic, and panic into fury, the Israelites confront their leader, and by extension their God. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die of thirst, they ask Moses. Give us water to drink. I have to confess that I get irritated sometimes reading these Exodus stories. What a bunch of whiners and amnesiacs, I think. How could people so drenched in the miraculous still find reasons to complain? What was wrong with them? In this week's reading, Moses apparently agrees. Why do you quarrel with me? He asks the angry crowds impatiently. Why do you put the Lord to the test? The language Moses uses here is legal language. The Israelites aren't expressing concern. They're lodging a complaint. Essentially, they're taking God to court. But unlike Moses or me, God doesn't respond to his people's complaints with irritation. He responds with empathy, long-suffering, and even playfulness. You want a trial? He seems to ask in the astonishing scene that follows. Fine, no problem. I'll give you a trial. Go out in front of the people, he instructs Moses. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand but before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come. In other words, assemble your courtroom, gather your witnesses, bring the rod of judgment. I will be in the stand, waiting. Moses obeys, and miracle follows. The writer of Exodus spares us the frenzied aftermath, but we can imagine it, can't we? The mad dash towards the gushing water, the jostling of knees and elbows against the slick rocks, Moses' sigh of relief and gratitude. I understand the miracle. What's harder for me to understand is God's vast patience. Why doesn't he get angry? Perhaps the answer lies in the story's conclusion. And Moses called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? 
Maybe, the ancient Israelites feared, they were all alone. Maybe the exodus itself had been a mistake. Maybe they had misread the signs, and God had abandoned them. At stake was not God's existence, but his presence in the details of their lives. Is God with us here in the desert? Is he among us when we thirst? Is God still for us? The easy thing about systems of oppression is that their chains of command are brutally clear. In Egypt, the pharaoh and his slave masters were in charge, period. In the desert, by contrast, the Israelites faced all the terrors of true liberty. God would not oppress them into trusting him. I will stand there, God promised Moses, knowing that what the people really needed wasn't water, but his abiding presence. Perhaps a true miracle wasn't God's intervention, but his restraint. Did anyone look past the waterfall that day and glimpse the Holy One? Scripture says he was standing there, his trial apparently over, and his generous nature vindicated yet again. God in the dock, God in the shadows, God in the cleft between rock and water. What does it mean that he goes to such ridiculous lengths to honor our liberty, even when that liberty frees us to ignore him? It's important to note that God led the Israelites to Rephidim in the first place. They traveled from place to place as the Lord commanded. Our misguided theologies of prosperity notwithstanding, the God who gives us water also gives us the wilderness. The place of strife is also a holy place, and the circumstances that ostensibly point to God's absence are often the ones that reveal his presence most richly. When the ancient Hebrews named a place, a grove of trees, a well, they were marking it as significant in their sacred geography. Moses named the watering rock Meribah and Massa, not their source of abundant water or the rock where the Lord provided, but a place of trial, contention, and strife. I find it consoling that even this dark spot on the Israelite spiritual map has a place in the foundational texts of our faith. Is God among us or not? Foolishly, we ask the question as if its answer should come to us once and for all, so that if God proved his existence thunderously enough, we'd never ask for reassurance again. He won't. And even if he did, the story from Exodus teaches us that we would ask again anyway. What the Israelites really yearned for, what we really yearn for, is not God out there in the cosmos. It's God right here in the messy particulars of our lives. We ask again and again because we need to know again and again. Is God among us now, and now, and now, and now? In the parched marriage, the gut-wrenching diagnosis, the shrinking paycheck, the untimely death, in the war zone, the brothel, the earthquake, the drought, in the scorching, shape-shifting deserts he leads us into and out of for reasons we often don't understand, is God among us or not? It's the only question that matters. To ask it is to register our need, our yearning, and our hope. To ask it is to journey into radical freedom, knowing that the God of both wilderness and water has compassion enough for our questions. As it turns out, God doesn't need a legal address in order to answer our summons. To our perpetual surprise, he shows up freely and stands before us. He is in the dock, now as ever, waiting. For books this week, we've posted a review of Americana, a novel by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. If Emelu remembers the exact day that she stopped speaking with an American accent and reverted to the natural lilt of her Nigerian homeland, 
No longer would she imitate her Auntie Uju, who had preceded her to America. Whenever Auntie Uju spoke to white Americans in the presence of white Americans, she spoke with an American accent. But that artifice came with a cost. There emerged a new persona. Ifemelu felt like America had subdued her. Ifemelu is the main protagonist and narrator in Adichie's new novel about how race and place shape our personal identities. Immigration intensifies the search for the true self, for it's often a time when we reinvent ourselves, willingly or not, knowingly or not, into new versions of our former selves. This dynamic is further intensified by Adichie's story of a black Nigerian spending 13 years in white America and then returning to Nigeria. Along the way, she leaves her Nigerian boyfriend and falls in love with black and white American men. Language is only one of the many cultural codes and clues that Ifemelu must negotiate. She loved Princeton, but had to take a train to Trenton to get her nappy hair braided. Adichie repeatedly construes hair as the perfect metaphor for race. She challenges us. Would Obama be president if his wife Michelle wore an unruly fro? The exact color of your skin is just as powerful, and Adichie, who grew up in Nigeria, deconstructs how African-Americans and American-Africans, as well as whites, play this game. Wherever she turned, Ifemelu encountered slippery layers of meaning that eluded her. Music, food, church, school, and work. Even one's bearing and demeanor revealed that fine-grained mark that culture stamps on people. Returning to Nigeria wasn't much easier. She was no longer sure what was new in Lagos and what was new in herself. At a meeting of Nigerian returnees from the West, she feared that she had become the smug cosmopolitan Americana, who complained about all the good things they missed. But she couldn't help now seeing Nigeria through American eyes, and some of what she saw was not pretty. This is a powerful social critique of race, identity, and belonging. The New York Times listed it as one of the top ten books of 2013. Adichie's work has been translated into 30 languages. For movies this week, we review a film called Life Itself. Two thumbs up for this documentary about the life of the film critic Roger Ebert. The title of the movie, and much of its narrative, comes from Ebert's 2011 autobiography of the same name. Roger Ebert was many things. A Midwestern good guy from Urbana, Illinois. A 300-pound alcoholic who quit drinking when he was 37 and never had another drop. A Pulitzer Prize winner for criticism. A screenwriter and author of 17 books. A doting husband to his beloved Chaz, a black attorney whom he married when he was 50. A sparring partner with Gene Siskel. He was gregarious and petulant, a champion of the common person and the most powerful film critic of his day. Most of all, he will be remembered for his grace and total lack of self-pity after cancer surgery in 2006 removed his lower jaw and he lost the ability to eat, drink, or speak. I see that this film received a whopping 97% rating on the tomato meter. Our poem today is Mary Oliver's Fall Song. Another year gone, leaving everywhere its rich, spiced residues, vines, leaves, the uneaten fruits crumbling damply in the shadows, unmattering, back from the particular island of this summer, this now. That now is nowhere except underfoot, moldering in that black, subterranean castle of unobservable mysteries, roots and sealed seeds and the wanderings of water. 
This I try to remember when time's measure painfully chafes. For instance, when autumn flares out at the last, boisterous and like us longing to stay. How everything lives, shifting from one bright vision to another, forever in these momentary pastures. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 28, 2014. I'm Debbie Thomas.